0: Chapter fourteen of China and the Chinese by Edmund Ploschut translated by N. Dunver. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Rushick. Chapter fourteen A Child of Four Chosen Emperor The Power of the Empress Dowager The Palace Feud The Palace at Peking A Frenchman's Interview with the Emperor. The Emperor's Person Held Sacred. Coming of Age of the Emperor. An Enlightened Proclamation. Reception of the Foreign Ministers in 1889. Education of the Young Monarch. He goes to do homage at the tombs of his ancestors. A wife is chosen for him. His Secondary Wives. China, the Battleground of the Future. Railway Concessions. On the death of the Emperor Tong Che, there was for the first time for 300 years no direct heir to the throne of China, and it being the law of the country, that the heir must be younger than the person he inherits from, the choice fell upon the infant son of one of Tong Che's brothers, the Prince of Chun, seventh son of Tiao Kuang, who still occupies the throne, if throne it can be called when the monarch is a mere prisoner in the hands of the dowager empress, compelled to amuse himself in his enforced seclusion as best he can, and spending much of his time in training pets, such as goats and monkeys. The ambitious title of Kuang Sen, or The Succession of Glory, was bestowed upon the little fellow of four years old, who has, alas, found his reign rather a succession of misfortunes of every kind, than one of redounding either to his own glory or that of his people. Once more the unfortunate country has had to suffer all the evils of a long minority, the real power being in the hands of an unscrupulous woman, who yields the scepter of state with a hand of iron, keeping the Son of Heaven in complete subjection. For many years, says the astute observer Archibald Colcun, In his China in Transformation, the politics of Peking have been swayed by a bitter palace feud, the young emperor and his party on one side, and the empress dowager on the other. Of a passionate nature and an imperious will, inspired by purely selfish considerations, the late regent continues to dominate and even to terrorize the emperor, who is of feeble physique and incapable of wielding the power which belongs to him. He is a mere puppet in the hands of those who ought to obey him, and his name is not associated with a single act of policy worthy of the ruler of a great empire. Li Hongcheng, the courtier, more than once already referred to, is the chief agent of the dowager empress, and to these two was due the disgraceful abandonment of the war with Japan which the emperor himself wished to carry on to the bitter end, and the signing of the ignominious treaty in 1895. It is just possible that should the empress dowager die before him, and she is an old woman now, the emperor Kuang Sen may yet take the reins of government into his own hands. But with pretty well every European nation clamoring for a slice of his dominions, He will indeed be a wonderful man if he succeeds in leaving any semblance of power to his successor. The Emperor's Apartments This unfortunate occupant of a doomed throne has spent most of his life at Peking in the great palace of his ancestors, his apartments being situated in the center of the multitudinous buildings, not far from those set apart for the use of the real ruler, the Dowager Empress. The space the palace occupies is so vast that ministers on their way to the council chamber have more than half a mile to walk after entering the precincts. Audience is only given by the emperor at the early hours, four, five, or six in the morning, and certain high functionaries have the privilege, according them, of being carried to the reception hall in sedan chairs. Many an important personage rejoicing in all manner of high-sounding titles, has, however, been compelled to remain waiting all night in gala costume in some ante-room for the early morning interview, and foreigners complain bitterly of the discomforts they still have to endure before they are allowed to come face-to-face either with the real or the nominal head of the state. A friend of mine connected with the French embassy told me that on one of the very rare occasions when he and some of his colleagues succeeded in obtaining an interview with the Son of Heaven, the time fixed for the audience was at four o'clock a.m. He was conducted by a chamberlain to a room in which a few candles were burning on a table covered with yellow cloth. On the other side of this table opposite to him was the emperor, with a screen of delicate jonquil yellow color on either side. Behind one of these screens knelt Prince Kung, and behind the other the Empress. Obeying a sign from the Chamberlain, the visitors saluted the Emperor, but without performing the kowtow from which Lord Macartney saved all foreigners by his firm attitude in 1793. And my friend, as he rose up after his respectful obeisance, could not resist just raising his eyes to have a look at the Son of Heaven, who was at that moment yawning enough to dislocate his jaws for this presumption the attache was immediately rebuked by the chamberlain who ordered him to keep his eyes fixed on the ground until the end of the interview the emperor's bed the emperor's apartments consist of seven spacious rooms in each of which is a kang or divan such as is in use everywhere in the north of china covered with red felt of native manufacture and provided with cushions adorned with gold embroidery, representing the symbolic dragon and phoenix. On the floors of the royal domain are beautiful European carpets of various kinds, and numerous tables, whatnots, etc., are crowded with objects of art, such as porcelain and pottery, mostly produced in China, though of late years some foreign products have figured amongst them. The Son of Heaven sleeps in a big bed made at ningpo richly decorated with gold and ivory the very same as that used by his illustrious ancestor kung hai he is treated by eight eunuchs in attendance on his person with as much reverence as was the great founder of the now weakened dynasty and as are the lamas in the convents on the lofty plateau of tibet and mongolia where the modified form of buddhism known as lamaism is practised The person of the emperor is held so sacred that neither iron nor steel is ever allowed to touch him, which of course makes it impossible for him to receive surgical aid should he be suffering from any of the diseases requiring the use of a knife. Fortunately, he was vaccinated when an infant in the cradle, before those in charge of him had any suspicion of the great destiny in store for him. The story goes that a doctor who proposed to save the life of a Chinese emperor by bleeding him nearly lost his own head as a punishment. The same superstition prevails in Korea, where one of the kings died in the 18th century, when he might have been saved if he, or rather those about him, could have been induced to allow a lancet to be used on his sacred person. The young emperor was declared of age in 1889, and he was at once informed that the foreign ministers would be glad to be allowed to pay their respects to him on this auspicious occasion. To their great surprise, consent to their reception was given, not very long afterwards. That consent being published in the Peking Gazette in the following year, in terms most flattering to all concerned. After the usual preamble, the emperor was made to say, An important interview. The ministers of the various powers residing in Peking have abundantly shown their loyal desire to maintain peaceful relations and international friendship. This I cordially recognize, and I rejoice in it. It is also hereby decreed that a day be fixed every year for an audience. On the next day, the foreign ministers are to be received at a banquet at the foreign office. The same is to be done every year in the first month, and the rule will be the same on each occasion. The remainder of the proclamation was couched in equally courteous terms, presenting a very marked contrast to the grudging, indeed almost insolent, assent given by previous emperors to any request for an audience by the representatives of the European powers. When the interview took place, moreover, the various ministers were admitted to the presence of their host one by one. Instead of altogether, as on previous occasions, whilst the attaches, etc., were received collectively later. The Emperor was seated on a raised platform at the end of the vast reception hall, with Prince Qing, President of the Foreign Board, kneeling on one side. As each minister came up to the platform, making three bows on the way, he was introduced by the Prince, who took from him the letters of credence and placed them on the table near the Son of Heaven, who, after bowing an acknowledgment, made a long speech to the prince, who listened to it on his knees. The reply completed, he rose, and with uplifted arms went down to the body of the hall, where he repeated to the foreign interpreter the following speech. We desire to convey to all ministers, de d'affaires, and secretaries, who have presented congratulations to us, that we truly appreciate and are very pleased with all their kind expressions, and we sincerely wish that their respective sovereigns may this year have all things according to their heart's desire, and that their happiness and prosperity may increase. We also hope that you ministers will stay long in China in the full enjoyment of health, and that friendly relations between China and foreign countries will never cease surely nothing could be more courteous and conciliatory than the behavior of the young emperor on this important occasion and but for the terrible war in japan which so soon afterwards shook his throne to its foundations he might perhaps have won a real alliance with some western power which would have saved him from the partition of his empire from which there is now no hope of escape on the coming of age of the son of heaven His mother, the princess of Chun, was raised to the rank of empress, but his father, the prince, received no accession of dignity. Both parents, when admitted to the presence of their august son, kneel to him and treat him as a being altogether superior to themselves. Still young, Kuang Sen is fond of riding, shooting with the bow and arrow, and skating. His day is rigidly portioned out, and he has little real liberty. When he was a child, his teachers approached him on their knees and were only allowed to sit in his presence when he gave them permission. He had to work at the Chinese and Manchu languages for an hour and a half every day and is really extremely well-educated, though, fortunately for foreigners, he is anything but fond of the Mandarins or the literati, who would gladly poison his mind against everything European. At regular intervals, he goes to do homage at the tombs of his ancestors, as do all of the high or low degree in China. And on these solemn occasions, he is accompanied by the empresses and a suite of no less than 30,000 persons, including princes, nobles, mandarins, apparitors, lictors, banner bearers, porters, etc. Long before dawn on the day of the ceremony, The main road is strewn with fine sand and is decorated with white and blue velvet flags, whilst at regular intervals, tables are set up covered with yellow drapery and bearing the inscription, Ya Tao, signifying the imperial road, words full of terrible significance to the Chinese, for they mean that all on pain of death should keep out of the way of the Son of Heaven. Stringent Measures of Precaution The most stringent measures are taken even in the capital to protect the sovereign from the gaze of the profane. Not only are all the inhabitants compelled to close the doors of their houses when he is about to pass, but no one is allowed to climb on the walls of the town, lest from them they should catch even a glimpse of the imperial procession, nor is it only reverence for the sacred person, which leads to all these precautions." There is the danger that some evil-minded person might attempt to take the life of the emperor by firing at him from a distance with one of those awful engines of destruction, the range of which even now seems so extraordinary to the Celestials, in spite of their recent experiences in the war with the Japanese. The Chinese police forbid even European women to show themselves on the day of the procession, lest the sovereign should see them, for the Myrmidons of the law, accustomed to the strict seclusion of the female sex in their native land, believe that those who enjoy a liberty such as that of the wives and daughters of the diplomatists to be capable of any crime, even against the venerated Son of Heaven. Secondary Wives in China A wife was, of course, chosen for Kuang Sen as soon as he attained his majority, and the lady selected for the difficult position of empress, was the daughter of an official of the province of chai Kiang, who was, it is said, as good and as well-educated as she was beautiful. Truly, it must have been an immense change in her life to be raised from her humble position as the child of a mere nobody, to be placed on the throne of the most populous empire of the world, and the way in which she has fulfilled her high destiny is very differently judged by the few who really know anything of palace life in China. Her influence has not, of course, been as paramount as it would have been in a country where monogamy was practiced. Very soon after she became a bride, various supplementary beauties were chosen to fill the royal harem, and the so-called lotus flowers, tea blossoms, etc., We're all equally irreproachable in manners and morals from the Chinese point of view. The number of left-handed marriages permitted in China is illimitable, and where there is money enough to support them, a man often has as many as 300 secondary wives. As a matter of course, there is none of the fierce jealousy in the Celestial Empire, such as is aroused on the mere suspicion of a rival in the virtuous bosom of a European wife other countries, other manners. And in China, wives and concubines live peacefully enough under one roof with no more friction than is seen amongst the hens in a poultry yard. Time alone can show what will be the eventual outcome of the life now being lived in the imperial palace of Peking. For time alone can sift the truth from the many conflicting rumors which reach the outer world. One thing alone is certain. China will be the battleground of the future, and the yellow peril about which so much has been prophesied will assume many an unexpected form before the century just about to begin in its turn nears its close. End of chapter fourteen. Conclusion When the very month brings some change in the political position in China, and the daily press is full of more or less contradictory rumors as to what is going on at peking it is impossible to come to any real decision on the many vexed questions under discussion. One great fact, however, emerges distinctly from out of the chaos of conflicting data, and that is that it will be Russia, with her wonderful faculty for working steadily onwards toward a definite aim, who will secure the lion's share in the spoilation of the Celestials. Whilst her Trans-Siberian Railway, which already pays its way, creating trade wherever it passes and in another four years will connect st petersburg with port arthur will be one of the most important factors in changing the course of the commerce of the world shut in as she is on the east by the english in burma and the french in cochin china threatened on the west by the germans and the japanese and dominated on the north by russia The Celestial Empire finds herself compelled to awake from her long stupor and to arouse herself to action of some kind. With no real army, no longer an efficient fleet, however, what can she do? She can only choose what seems to her the least of the evils, hemming her in on every side, and elect from among many competitors for the post the protector best able to serve her, not only from her outside enemies, but from herself. Importance of Russia. As has been very aptly said, Russia is of all the Western powers the most imbued with Oriental ideas, and she combines, with the energy and ambition of a first rate power of the future, a sympathy with the celestials altogether wanting to France, Germany, or Great Britain. There is, in fact, an actual affinity of race between the Chinese and the inhabitants of the northern steppes. And there is therefore far more hope of real amalgamation between them than there can be in any other case. The English, the French, the Germans, the Italians, if they win the concessions they are now in their turn clamoring for, will always be aliens in the districts they acquire, and there will never, to use a homely but expressive phrase, be any love lost between them and the natives li Hung Chung, one of the most enlightened statesmen who have ever arisen in china came to europe in eighteen ninety six with a view to ascertaining by personal observation which of the western nations would be likely to be the best friend for his distracted country in the enfeebled condition to which the war with japan had reduced her he saw quickly enough that it would not be england nor germany nor france but that it would be russia It was therefore with Russia that a treaty was eventually made and ratified in 1897. This treaty, in addition to other privileges, giving to the great northern power, Port Arthur, with the right of making it a coaling station, and in case of war, concentrating troops in its harbor. The Russians and the Chinese, say Michy, writing more than 30 years ago, are peculiarly suited to each other. The Russians meet the Chinese as Greek meets Greek. They understand each other's character thoroughly because they are so closely alike. Recent events have proved how true was the insight of this astute observer, and it is evident that whilst the other powers will have to content themselves with their various spheres of influence, Russia alone will obtain real political control of the celestial empire as a whole. There remains now no hope that the disintegrating forces at work in the once powerful nation will be arrested from within, in spite of the fact that again and again China has risen in the past from apparent dissolution into a greater nation than before, absorbing her conquerors and converting them into patriots, ready to dare all for their adopted country. The saving force must now come from without, And when once more there is a strong hand directed by a strong brain at the head of affairs, the resources of the unhappy land will be found to be practically inexhaustible. With a prolific soil, vast mineral wealth, and a teachable population, there is indeed no limit to what China, which has been called the India of the future, may become. In the imminent partition of China into spheres of influence, Should that partition finally supersede the more generous policy of the opening of the whole country on equal terms to the trade of all the European nations, the Yangtze Basin, with its populous towns of Nanking, Hongkou, Fushan, and others, will be the field of action of Great Britain, whilst Shangtung, a rich sea-bound province, will be that of Germany, and the French, who already occupy Tongking on the south, will obtain concessions in the neighboring districts. On every side, railways are now being projected, and the probability is that ere the century just about to open has half run its course, the whole of China will be intersected by them. In the Blue Book on Chinese Affairs, issued on the 14th March of the current year, 1899, The following significant statistics of the railway concessions granted to foreigners in the Celestial Empire are given, showing that Great Britain is more than equal to Russia in the actual amount of mileage secured, whilst Germany, France, Belgium, and America have amongst them less than Great Britain alone. Telegraphs in China British Railways, 2,800 miles Russian railways, 1,530 miles, German railways, 720 miles, Belgian railways, 650 miles, French railways, 420 miles, American railways, 300 miles. More important still, as breaking up finally the isolation on which China has prided herself for so many centuries, is the fact that already pretty well all the important towns of the vast empire are connected by telegraph with each other and with the outside world. The searchlight of publicity is in fact turned full upon the land, once so fraught with mystery, and before long there will be no hidden thing connected with either court or country which will not be revealed to the inquisitive gaze of all the world. End of China and the Chinese by Edmund Ploschut, translated by N. Dunver.